Hello, Pod Nation. It's Andy, the analytical preacher. You know, when folks find out that I'm a minister, but that I have this analytical background, that I was an analytical consultant for a couple of decades and so forth, the first question they asked me, and a little surprising to me in the beginning, the first question they asked, the most frequent question I get asked is not, is there a God or how do I know there's a God? The overwhelming majority of people that I speak to know that there's a God or they assume that there's some God-like being out there. The most frequent question is, how do I know the Bible is true with all the competing holy books out there? Why would I know that the Bible is true? Before we answer that question, let me say, that is a great and valid question. God in no way says, you lack faith because you don't believe that the Bible is true without having some way to verify it for yourself. In fact, just the opposite. God provides us the way to verify that the Bible is His Word and that we should choose it over all other possible uh, religious scripture. So great question. Let me answer that question. God provides us a very definitive answer. I'm going to start actually by going back and looking at the definition of science that the great uh, 20th century philosopher of science, a gentleman named Karl Popper, Karl um, sort of broke it down into really a, a, a simple sentence to say, this is science. And, and he says this, insofar as a scientific statement speaks about reality, it must be falsifiable. And insofar as it is not falsifiable, it does not speak about reality. That, that's a hugely powerful statement. And let me tell you why. So let's say we've got a, an area and individuals are getting sick in this area. And someone comes in and says, here's what's happening. Uh, you've offended goddess so-and-so. And those who've offended the goddess the greatest are the ones who are getting sick. And that's the problem. Okay, well, here's the real problem. We can't tell if that's true or not. It's not falsifiable, Karl Popper says. Therefore, that's not science. That's myth or whatever you want to call it. If someone comes in and says, I think it's these mushrooms that we're eating. And if somebody eats them, they'll get sick. And if this group doesn't eat them, nobody in that group then would get sick. So we try that, but it doesn't work. People still continue to get sick, though they aren't eating it. Those who are eating the mushrooms don't get any sicker than those who aren't. That's science. It's scientific. We've just falsified it. It's not truth. It's not reality, but it is scientific. Now, someone else says, I think it's this water source over here. Let's have everybody cease to drink from that water source and drink from this other water source. And sure enough, nobody's getting sick. Somebody goes back, tests that old water source. They immediately get sick. And now we've, we've put forth a prediction. We've laid out an explanation. It was falsifiable. And we tested it, but it wasn't falsified. And so that is truth. That is reality. And so Popper would say there are some scientific endeavors and then there are non-scientific endeavors. And within the scientific, we have to determine truth or error from truth, if you will. Okay, God actually laid out for us the exact same methodology for determining the truth of his word. And it started with Moses. Now, remember... um, Moses had performed some pretty strong miracles in front of the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people that he had led out of captivity in Egypt. One of the ways that the Bible authenticated or verified its messengers was through the use of miracles. And there's not a lot of miracles in the Bible when we read it. It seems like, wow, down through history, there's been all these miracles. No, they're really just a few specific points in time when Moses began to pull 
the people out of Egypt and form from them the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. Uh, folks like Moses was, um, uh, God allowed him to perform miracles to validate his uh, uh, prophetship, to validate him as a speaker uh, for God. When the uh, Hebrew nation was about to be taken captive and then come back from captivity and they were having all these problems with false gods, God sent prophets starting with Elijah and Elisha. And again, he allowed them to perform miracles to validate that they were actually speaking for God. Then you go hundreds and hundreds of years, no miracles, nobody speaking for God. And then Jesus and the apostles come along and while they're on the earth, you get another round of miracles, kind of the third major round of miracles while the apostles uh, and Christ himself are on the earth. And then miracles, of course, uh, Paul told us would cease to exist uh, once the apostles were gone and they had written the Bible, etc. So we don't have them anymore. If I had been in the presence of Moses, the 10 plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water from a rock... I no doubt would have been impressed and probably said to myself, this character certainly is speaking for God. No one can do these supernatural things. But here's the honest truth for an analytical person. They really don't mean anything to me today. I didn't see Moses perform a miracle. I didn't see Elijah or Elisha perform a miracle. I didn't see Christ or Peter or Paul perform a miracle. So for me, that method, which must have been incredibly strong and convincing in the moment, that method means very, very little to me today. But this is what happened. As Moses was nearing the end of his life, and nobody really had questioned that Moses was God's prophet and that he was speaking directly from and directly for God. The problem God knew is when Moses left the scene, and Moses actually said before he left the scene, God will send additional prophets, and then God will send one great prophet, Jesus Christ, of course. Um, God will send additional prophets. Immediately, of course, people had to have a way to understand how will we know. And this is what we read. So in Deuteronomy 18, God is going through this process. Specifically, we're going to pick it up in Deuteronomy 18, verse 21. And, and God tells Moses to tell the people this. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. A prophet is simply someone who speaks for another person. In this case, speaks for uh, on behalf of God. A prophet is someone who explains things or predicts things. And so what God is literally saying here through Moses, this is how you will know true scripture from false scripture. If it doesn't even attempt Back to Karl Popper. If it doesn't even attempt to explain the world or make predictions about the future, then it's not religious. And so there's a lot of literature today that we would label that's religious literature, that's holy literature. But God would say, no, it's actually not. It's just myths and it's rules about, you know, how to live well and that sort of stuff. But it's not religious in that sense because it never even tried to pass the test of being spoken from. God. And then, of course, God would say, 
as did Popper. And then there will be quote-unquote religious text, and some of their explanations of the world and some of their predictions about the future will come true. That is what I have spoken. That's my word. And then there will be some, of course, that will be false. You can ignore that. Don't worry about it. When we think about predictions, we think about uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted more than once the end of the world, and yet we're still here, so we know that Jehovah's Witness and their Bible is false. The Seventh-day Adventists have predicted the end of the world. It didn't happen. We can go back to the Mayan religion. Recall the Mayan religion predicted that a big cycle was going to come to a, a close and the world was going to end, I think, back in December of 2012 or something like that. Didn't happen. That was religious. It just turned out to be a false religion. And it's not just Moses. It's important to understand as we go, come into the New Testament, Jesus tells people, beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. The apostle John tells us, test everything. You know how to test. You know how to test everything. God told Moses way back in Deuteronomy 18, test everything. Test every person who says, oh, this was spoken to me by the Spirit, etc. So that's why I said it's not a bad question. It's actually a valid and powerful question to say. How do we know that the Bible is true? So if we know true scripture from false scripture, if we know religious scripture in general, because it tries to explain the natural world and make predictions about the future, then the obvious question is, how did the Bible validate itself in that way? And really, we can start with the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And so the Bible tells us, before you get 10 words in to the book, the Bible tells us that the universe that matter and time and energy have not always existed. The earth is not eternal. That's a pretty powerful prediction. It turns out, of course, that for a a long, long time, science wanted to believe and even tried to prove that that wasn't true. Those of you who are familiar with physics will remember uh, Einstein's cosmological constant, and Einstein put, which he later called the biggest blunder, of my scientific uh, career. Einstein's cosmological constant was essentially forced into his special relativity equations to make the earth static and eternal. But of course, we now know that the, the universe is not static and it is not eternal. So that's important. Again, if we look in the first chapter of Genesis in 114, or we look over uh, in Genesis 8 after the flood with Noah, we see this. God tells man that the earth is going to work in a consistent mechanistic way. And he told that to Adam and Eve. Noah probably was questioning that coming out of the flood. So he's like, does that still hold? And God said, yes, the world is still going to work in a consistent mechanistic way. It's interesting how many cultures down through time have assumed that's not the case, that that we live at the whim of of the gods. And if we do this, this volcano is going to go off because that God's upset. And if we do that, the sun may not rise back up because that God wasn't satisfied. And there was never this thought that the world worked consistently and we could study it and subdue it as the Bible tells us to do. Except for those who believed in God's word, there was definitely this understanding that the world was going to work in a consistent way. The Bible speaks in a few different places. There's verses in the book of Job, in the book of Psalm, in the book of Isaiah about God at creation, quote unquote, stretching out the heavens. In other words, 
Earth, God did not create the universe in its current form. God started with something that was much smaller, and then he stretched out the universe. And of course, we know, uh, we think back to Hubble's uh, work, the gentleman for whom the uh, Hubble telescope was named. We think about Dr. Hubble's work where he showed, looking at the red shift of light coming from distant galaxies, etc., that, oh yeah, the earth is in fact expanding. I'm sorry, not the earth. The universe is in fact expanding, which would suggest that it started at a much smaller size and then was stretched out, if you will. Maybe to me, the most interesting point about the Bible, beyond in the beginning, oh yes, there was a beginning, uh, which turned out scientifically to be proven true four, five, six thousand years later. To me, maybe the most interesting is in Genesis chapter two, verse one, it says that uh, God finished creation or that it was completed. And that's a very interesting word. It was originally written in Hebrew and, and, and the structure and the tense of the Hebrew word says that creation was finished and that it could not be added to or taken away from. So I might say to you, oh, I finally completed building my new house. But you would sort of have this understanding. At any time I want, I could take away from the house, or I could add an additional room onto the house, etc. The word written in Genesis 2.1 that God had finished, had completed his creation, was specifically written to say, it cannot be added to, and it will not be added to or taken away from. Seems a little crazy looking in the world that we live in, um, but we know that the first law of thermodynamics states exactly that, that matter and energy cannot be created nor destroyed. How on earth did they know that? way back in the time when Genesis chapter 2 was written, unless it came from God. Matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. Now, Einstein's famous E equals MC square equation teaches us that matter and energy can change forms, uh, that they're sort of equivalent to each other, that they can change forms, but they can't be created. And that's exactly the, the thought process, the, the methodology, the outline that we get from Genesis. God says, my creation is complete and it's not going to be added to or taken away from. However, human beings, Adam and Eve, I'm giving you a stewardship of my creation. You are to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. In other words, go in there and change it around. Make of it what you can and what you will. Come to understand it and improve it. Transform it from this form to that form, but just understand the raw material there to work with. I've set and that can't be added to or taken away from. Not only was the first law of thermodynamics mentioned in Scripture, but the second law of thermodynamics as well. If you look in Psalm 102, in Isaiah 51 in the Old Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, we read these verses that the universe is wearing out, that the universe is wearing down, and that eventually the universe will run down, wear down, extinguish itself, and perish. That's exactly what the second law of thermodynamics states. That's, that's the consequence of the second law of thermodynamics. And so, again, we, we see in the Bible a number of scientific facts. Eternal universe, growing universe, first law of thermodynamics, second law of thermodynamics.
But there's more. The Bible also speaks, it says in Isaiah chapter 40, that from where God sits up in the heavens and looks down on the earth, that it looks, it, it looks round, it looks like a ball, or it looks like a circle. Uh, so again, the, the, the very first scientific uh, knowledge that the, that the world was round comes from uh, the Bible. In Job chapter 26, there's this crazy verse that's where God talks about, um, Job, you don't really understand, but the earth hangs on nothing. The Bible was literally the first literature to say the Bible hangs on nothing. These are easily falsifiable predictions, right? What if the earth wasn't eternal or what if it wasn't expanding or what if the earth didn't hang on nothing and just float out in space because of gravity, etc.? Job 38, 12 to 14 even seems to imply that the earth is rotating on its axis and that it's the rotation of the earth like clay on a potter's wheel, it says. It's the rotation of the earth that even causes the beautiful colors in the sky at sunrise and at sunset, staying in Job chapter 38, God says, Job, did you know, do you understand that human voices can be carried on lightning to say hello? We now know that radio waves are a byproduct, a natural byproduct of lightning. And so now we go, oh, wow, God was right. We can carry human voices and speak to each other, say hello to each other on radio waves. Let me give you one more scientific, and then we'll jump to a couple of prophecies. One more scientific. If we look at Ecclesiastes 1.7 and Ecclesiastes 11.3, and we combine that with Amos, which is an Old Testament prophet, 9.6, we essentially get a description of what our teachers today call the hydrological water cycle. The hydrological water cycle uh, simply says this, and this is exactly what these scriptures say. Water comes up out of the ocean. It's gathered into clouds. It goes over the earth. It's dumped as rain on the earth. What the earth doesn't soak up is captured in the rivers and then funneled back to the ocean to repeat the cycle. You notice God had two different individuals, Solomon and Amos, write this. Maybe it was because God says, I need to put this out there to be verified, to be valid, but I don't want either one of these gentlemen to fully understand what they're writing as they write it. So scientifically, they'll discover this over time, and it will help show to analytical people that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God, because these hundreds and hundreds of predictions and explanations were never falsified. But it says things like, um, how come the oceans never fill up if the rivers just keep dumping into them? Well, here's the answer, because the water actually does come out of the ocean. We just don't see it. It comes up as vapor, and it falls as rain over the land. So again, thousands of years before science understood that, the Bible had laid that out there. Here's a bare natural prediction. Here's a bare explanation of how the natural world works. Now, go study the world. It works in a consistent mechanistic way. Go study the world and see if you can falsify any of those predictions. And as they come true one after the other, you'll come to see that this word that's captured in what we today call the Bible is the true word of God. And let me just give two quick examples from the prophecy standpoint. Uh, If you look in the Bible, there's probably more prophecies than there are natural predictions. Uh, But I'm just going to go with a couple of prophecies here that are absolutely amazing to me. When you look at Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah chapter 29, In Isaiah chapter 44, we see a prophecy that Israel 
because of their disobedience, we're told that Israel is going to be taken captive and held in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, that they will be allowed to return home from Babylon, and that a man named King Cyrus would be the one who would let them go. Here's what's interesting about this prophecy. One, it came true exactly as predicted. They were taken captive by the Babylonians. They stayed captive in Babylon for 70 years, and King Cyrus signed an edict that said they could return to their homeland. But here's what's interesting. There was no Persian empire when this prophecy was written. There was a Babylonian empire, but this idea that they would be taken captive by the Babylonians and then a Persian king named Cyrus would turn them loose was a little hard to swallow because there was no Persian empire at that time. And this was written 150 years before Cyrus was even born. And so God says, here's a prophecy that you can test out. Deuteronomy 18 style, a king who doesn't exist is going to rule an empire that doesn't exist, which is going to have taken over the empire that took over Israel. And after 70 years, that king from that empire will release you from the captivity that the previous empire had taken you under. Pretty incredible prophecy and prediction. One more. In Daniel, if you look in chapters 2 and 7 and 8, you get these insane prophecies. So again, God is saying, let me lay this out there to give you something hardcore that you can test. The prophet Daniel tells the Babylonian king, this is what God said to me. Your empire will come to an end. You're going to be conquered, in this case, by the Medo-Persian empire. And Daniel describes what that empire would look like and what what it would symbolize it so that we would know that it was the Medo-Persian empire. And then ultimately, that empire will be conquered by the Greeks. Daniel says, and God said that when the ruler of that empire dies, no one's going to be able to manage his entire empire. So it'll be broken into four parts. We know that's exactly what happened. The Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians only to be conquered by the Greeks. The Greek general who conquered them was Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great died at a very young age, no one was able to manage his entire empire as effectively and efficiently as he had. And so it was broken into four parts. Daniel's still going though. And he says, and that empire will ultimately be taken over by what you will come to call and recognize as the Roman Empire. And again, he gives us descriptions about it so that we can clearly see that's the empire. And that empire, the Roman Empire, will be the one that controls the territory of Israel when the Messiah is born. And that's exactly how over hundreds of years it played out. The Babylonians fell to the Medo-Persians who fell to the Greeks who were split into four when Alexander the Great died at a young age. Then the Romans took over. And then some uh, decades later, Jesus, the Messiah, was born into Roman-occupied territory in Israel. How do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that the Bible is actually the Word of God? It's real simple. Science tells us how to do it. You make explanations and predictions. And then any scripture, any holy writings that can't be 
held true. Any holy writings where the predictions and explanations are falsified is false religious writing. Any religious writing that's afraid to make explanations and predictions can't even be considered religious. And if there is a religious writing where all the explanations and predictions pass the falsification test, that's my word, God says. That's the word that you should respect. And that's the word that even you should fear.